Thank you, musicians and JT. Well, good morning, everyone. You sound like you're glad to be in air conditioning, is all I can say. Indeed, uh, we're glad you're here today, and especially during this time of year, lots of folks are traveling, and today that includes the Luttrell family and all 273 of them, I think is the last count. Uh, so we, we are glad to, for them to get an opportunity to get away and enjoy some time together. And uh, boy, don't look now, but it's the last week of July. And you know what that means, right? Christmas is right around the corner. So um, enjoy these last few weeks as folks are beginning to talk, not very loudly, mostly in whispers about back to school. And uh, those things will be here upon us before we know it for sure. And uh, church has lots of events and activities going on this time of year. And uh, I won't say it's normal, but it's more normal. We're seeing lots of events and things that are happening. So we're excited for that. Today I want to take us... Um, down a path of thinking about where we are in relation to our understanding of God. Now that's always an uphill battle, right? We'll never fully understand God this side of eternity, and I suspect even on that side of eternity. Because to, or, to fully understand God would make us equal with God. And we always are submissive to the reality that God is unique, he's distinct. The word we most apply to God is holy. So we come today with that, with that mindset, that attitude of saying, let's sort of get in focus a topic of learning about God. What does it mean to know about God? We're glad to be here today, and I'm especially glad to look out in the congregation and see Melba Atkins here. And uh, so Melba, we are certainly glad to have you and blessed to be here for this time. She has been away for many months now and uh, recovering, and so it's a real treat and a joy. So if you get the opportunity to say hello, I know it'll be a blessing to you for sure. And um, today we realize, too, that in the, uh, in the process of things, I, I jokingly say about Christmas, but we all know how quickly these next few months will go. Uh, pretty soon it will be back to school, and then it's Labor Day, and then, you know, the, the ball just continues to roll down the hill, and we will find ourselves in lots of events and activities that are more seasonal. Today I want to take us, uh, or start with, um, some surveys. You know, we, we live in a data-driven world right now. Lots of surveys and questions and uh, lots of information is passed along through that. So today I want to just dabble in a little bit of something here and introduce you to, to a set of questions that you may not be overly familiar with, and that's okay if you're not. In 2014, an organization called Ligonier Ministries began doing surveys of America's spiritual temperature, if you will, to see what people's feelings were about God, church, the things of church. And starting in 2014, they do it every other year. So it's followed 14, 16, 18, 20. As you can tell up there, I want to look at just a very small portion of statements from that survey done in 2020. They should be doing another one this year, so I'm anticipating an update to this, and maybe sometime down the road we'll share it. In 2020, they asked their uh, respondents 35 distinct questions. I'm not here today to go over all 35 of them, I promise you. But I thought these were interesting because these are the ones that I found of the 35 most focused on people's opinion about God and just a couple of things related to God. So again, get in mind, this is a survey of the broad population. This is not evangelicals, it's not Baptists, it's not even Christians as a, as a general term. It's just a general survey of people. 
So let's look at the statements and their responses, and I'll give them to you in percentages. Just to get us thinking. What about the statement, God is perfect? Simple enough statement, right? What percentage do you think of people said that is a true statement? Well, 65%. Barely two-thirds of people, in, according to the survey in the general population, think that God is perfect. Interesting point, right? The Christian teaching that God is one, the biblical teaching, that God is one but is expressed in the uniqueness of the Trinity. 72% agree to that. Interesting concept. A lot more people willing to say God is Trinity than they are to say God is perfect. That God created Jesus. That may sound odd to us, but I promise you there's lots of people out there, lots of platforms who teach something similar to that. 55% agree. That's why. That God created Jesus. Well, look at the implications. That means Jesus is not God himself, not part of the trinity of the Godhead. You actually find some contradictions in some of these numbers once you crawl into them a little bit. How about this? A little more personal statement. God is unconcerned with me. After all, he's God. His to-do list is never-ending. He's concerned about bigger things than just me. 25% of people agree to that. Which, of course, means uh, not completely 75% because there's a lot of these answers people said, I don't know. And then the last one, everyone be, should be learning something about God. Should be part of our normal life to want to learn something about God. 75% of the people agreed with that. If you do a little digging in the numbers, you find out that where's the other 25% at? The other 25% are basically people who say they have no affiliation with any religion, or they are atheist, not believing in God, or they are agnostic, doubting God. That's the other 25%. But to some degree, 75% of the people say we should be learning something about God. And so I submit to you today, today sitting in the auditorium of Gospel Baptist Church, where would your answers fall into those statements? And again, if you're really curious about this, go look up the State of Theology 2020 survey. And you can read and get a little more detail on all 35 of those questions. So my statement to you today comes with a question about have you thought rationally, intelligently, using your common sense and good thinking skills about God? I come to this pulpit today after having a unique experience this week that I hope you will not be too envious of because I, I had the opportunity to do this. I spent two days in jury duty. <laughs> two days because I did get assigned to a jury in state criminal court. And if you've been there and done that, it's an experience for sure. I'm not going to bore you with the details of a case or even the outcome. Wait and see it on court TV. But nonetheless, I sat there, and by the way, I was juror number one, which meant I got called at first and sat through everybody else's interviews. And I found the attorneys, both for the plaintiff and the defendant, 
frequently referring to, do you think you're a person of common sense, good understanding, and general intelligence? Reasonable question, I suppose. Let me ask you today, are you a person of common sense, good understanding, and general intelligence? Are you willing to hear the evidence and justify for yourself the reality of the situation? And that, of course, what, is what two days turned out to be. Sitting and hearing, the state would like to present evidence, article number one. The state would like to call this witness. The defense would like to call this witness. You've seen the TV shows. I've watched Perry Mason, too. I knew what to expect. And in the end, you take all of that evidence, testimony, and you combine it with logic. And you come to a conclusion, a conclusion not based on my impressions of the person, the defendant, or the victim, not my impressions of what I thought about them at face value. Not my emotions of how I felt that day, how I slept the night before, what I had for breakfast, none of that. Evidence, testimony, logic. Today I want us to take these moments together and with those thoughts in mind, consider the importance of understanding about God. What do we understand about God? How are we pursuing that in learning about God? Because I submit to you what I think is a very practical place to be. And that is if you get the God question wrong, you get everything else wrong. If you're unable to answer the most essential basic concepts of who God is, then the rest of it's going to be a jumbled mess. And I submit to you today in our culture in the name of religion, there's a lot of jumbled messes out there. Some of them even categorized under the name Christian. And so I want to first take a look at some of the things that are insufficient for our understanding of God. Here are some. You will find no truth whatsoever, no biblical truth that has any value to it in the cults, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christian Science, the Seventh-day Adventists. They've still got it all wrong. You will find no valid answers in the world religions. The Buddhists, the Hindus, the Baha'i faith, the Muslims, they're wrong. In today's culture, in today's society, we're seeing an attempt to blend it all together. And they want to pray to whichever God you want to pray to. Whatever you want to call God, him or her, let that be your God. Just pray to that God, whoever it is. Experience and emotions are also insufficient. Your dreams are insufficient. We have the revealed Word of God. The only thing a dream tells me is I ate pizza too late last night. <laughs> the experiences I have, the emotions I have, cannot be the the engine that drives this train. They are insufficient in what they provide for us. 
This is not the entirety of the list. A few more we could add to this, I think. Culture. You want to learn about God? Watch television. Touched by an angel. This is one example among many. You want to talk about God. Magazines and books come out. Have you ever noticed, pay attention during Easter season and during Christmas season, Time Magazine, Life, whichever one of them are still in publications, will always put out some book or some magazine about Jesus. You know why? Because they know it sells. People are anticipating something to help remind them of the reason for the season. JT and I were having a casual conversation recently, coming out of staff meeting, about a song recorded in 1976. And I submit there are people here who will know this song. By a country singer named Bobby Bear. And the title of the song, Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalpost of Life. How many people remember that song? Well, that's a song of great theology, isn't it? <laughs> Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalpost of Life. End over end, neither left nor the right. Right through the heart of those righteous uprights, drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life. Sad to say, some people will build their theology on songs. And we can't exclude some songs, again, under the category of Christian. I've heard some Christian songs, and I thought, boy, that, that, that rhymes well. The meter goes good, but you off base when it talks about what the Bible preaches. Don't let music, in and of itself, even Christian music, drive your understanding of God. Hopefully those notes and lyrics reflect biblical truth, but I'm just telling you, it's not true 100% of the time. Popular magazines and books just tend to flow. So there's, there's insufficient sources. And what I want to remind us all of is don't fall into the, I wouldn't even call this the shallow end of the pool. It's the kiddie pool of thinking about God by using these tools as your primary input of understanding God and his word. So what do we say, congregation, today at Gospel Baptist Church? Where is our source of God's truth come from? Right, that's it, the scriptures, the unchanging, inerrant, inspired word of God. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, equipped, well-prepared, well-trained, to handle the spiritual issues that life puts before us. So with that little bit of an introduction, I want today to allow God to introduce himself to us. Let's pray as we start. Father, today we come acknowledging you are God. There is no other. There is no equal. There is no truth beyond you. We acknowledge you are holy. We acknowledge you are righteous. We acknowledge that you are our Savior through Jesus Christ. And today we come to allow you to introduce yourself to us.
And I pray that you will be honored and that we will be instructed so that we may set our, set our thoughts, our hearts, our mind firmly upon the rock and the truth of your word. Open our hearts now, we pray, for these few moments in Christ's name. Amen. God introduces himself. I take us today to Exodus chapter 33. I've got some, I got some verses up here, the ones I'm going to hit. Look there, bookmark it, go back and read the entirety. Let me kind of set the stage of this portion of Scripture. This, of course, is after Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. The great miracle of crossing the Red Sea has occurred. They have gone to the mountain there where God will present to Moses his law and his command. In Exodus chapter 20, we read of the account of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses as part of the greater law. Later, about chapter 28, God will give to Moses the instructions of building the tabernacle. And so Moses is in this mountaintop experience. And having, as it will tell us in later chapters, being there 40 days, Moses makes an interesting request of the Lord. There all alone, Moses stands before God. He, Moses says, I beseech thee, Lord God, show me thy glory. Interesting request for sure. We pray lots of things in our request to God. We would say, I beseech thee, show me thy will. Show me thy purpose. Show me the person I'm supposed to marry. Show me the job I should take. Show me the opportunity before me. But that was not the heart of Moses. There on the mountain, he simply said, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to know more of you in a, in a way that none other has known. You would almost expect the response to be, Moses, you speak as a child. Surely you do not know what you're asking, for no person can see my face and live. And that's exactly what will be said. But God said, I will give you an opportunity. Not to see all of me, but to see just a glimpse, a portion. Here's the instructions we go on reading. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, there is a place by me, as if the Lord's presence is over here in this particular time. There is a place by me, and, if you, and you shall stand upon the rock, and it shall come to pass when my glory passes by that I will put out, I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, kind of in the corner over here, and I will cover thee with my hand. Get this image. God, as it were, in person with Moses to the side, God says, I will cover you with my hand. And I will walk by you, and when I get to a certain point, I will remove my hand, and you will simply see what's translated the back parts or the afterglow of God. But my face you shall not see, for no human can see the face of God and live, the Scripture tells us. Interesting request, right? Put yourself for a moment in the sandals of Moses. How would your heart rate elevate? 
you start to perspire? Would you begin to think, am I going to survive this? What have I even asked? And the Lord allows this to happen. He sets the scene here. We read on into chapter 34, and we see the event itself. The Lord passes by him. And as the Lord passes by, there's a proclamation. I call this God introducing himself. And through the words of Scripture, not just to Moses, but to us. To give us a perfect description, as it were, from the very voice of God himself to introduce himself. Listen to these words. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. There's a little portion I've left out there that talks about God visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I'll try to come back to that as we finish briefly. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's the only possible response there could have been. A bowing and a worshiping, an acknowledgement of who God is. This image in our mind, in our mind's eye, as described in Scripture, gives us a, an, an understanding of what God wants to emphasize about himself. As God introduces himself here to Moses in this very unique setting, and to us through the Scripture, he gives us these descriptions. I want to leave this verse up for a moment, as, and I want to go through these descriptions to give us a little more clarity to the words that God used to introduce himself. The Lord. Your translation may well have the word Lord in all capital letters, and rightfully it should. It is the proper name of God. It is the name that was introduced to Moses at the burning bush. For Moses would ask, who shall the people say is this God who has sent me? And you remember how it's translated the King James? I am that I am has sent thee. It's the proper name of God and wrapped up in that statement. And it simply is a word that is attempted to be pronounced as Yahweh. It becomes the foundation of the word that becomes in English Jehovah. It's very possible your translation may even have the word Jehovah there. I found several that did. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. And then it's repeated. But not just for the sake of repetition. Now there's an additional part to us. The Lord God. God in our English translations is diluted from the meaning of the original Hebrew. Because this word in Hebrew is a two-letter word, E-L, simply pronounced L. And it means God the Most High and All-Powerful. If you have heard it used, you maybe have heard these names for God. El Shaddai, El Elyon. You hear the L in there? The E-L sound means the God most high who is all-powerful. 
It would almost be like us on a human level. It's hard to make the full comparison, but it's like us on a human level. You walked up to someone that you're being introduced to, and you might say, my name is, let me use myself, my name is Miller, Harley Miller. This is what this would parallel to. The Lord introduced himself, I am Yahweh, Yahweh El, Jehovah who is the most high God, there is none other. This word even gets translated as hero, I really like that. God our hero who rescues us who is willing to sacrifice himself on our behalf, who is willing to go to no limits to bring us back to himself. What do we know of the Lord, the Lord God? He is merciful. This word means compassionate. It indicates mercy and forgiving, uh, forgiveness. Character traits of God, for sure. It's an important word in defining the character of God, because we think of God in his mercy. We can never, uh, it's, it's on your weekly announcements page. We have the banner up in the lobby. God is full of mercy, merciful. Every use of this particular word in the scriptures is always in reference to God. Because only he has this type of mercy. Only he has this capacity to extend mercy to those who are sinners and have offended him in his holiness. Mercy is part of God's moral character. And we are right to proclaim him merciful. Because certainly he introduced himself that way. It also says he is gracious. These two terms are rightly translated in the English really as one unit. It is merciful and gracious. Not merciful, comma, gracious. Merciful and gracious. These two words pair together. And again, referring to God, it means compassionate. It expresses the Lord's willingness to hear our, hear our cry. As Brother Wayne read to us from Psalms 40, I was in a horrible pit. I was in a miry clay. That's my condition. But the Lord, my hero, rescued me, set my feet on a rock. It is a reference to the grace he offers to those that recognize him and that reverence him in their lives. And it particularly applies to those who repent to him. Repentance is an important reality of the scripture. To repent and turn our hearts toward God, to turn away. It literally means just turn around. In that miry clay, I was slogging along in life trying to decide if life was even worth another day or another moment. Repentance grabs our heart and turns us around. and sets us on a rock. Gives us an exposure to God's grace when it is completely undeserved. It's his loving kindness. Probably no greater example would come to mind than the, the grace of the father to his prodigal son who came to him and said, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And the Father receives him openly and welcoming. It's a word that also means slow to anger. 
Much like the next word, long-suffering. This is also associated with God's character. It's a reference to his love and patience for us, his faithfulness, his power. It demonstrates his true nature of waiting. It reminds us that God is never in a hurry. Would it be so for us? And I'm guilty of above and beyond. God is never in a hurry. He is long-suffering toward us. He is patient. He understands our frailties and our weaknesses. It also says he is abundant. And again, these two, uh, these two words are tied together. Abundant in goodness and truth. We would literally read it this way. Abundant in goodness and abundant in truth. And that word abundant there is intended to imply the overflowing abundance. It's not that God's got a lot and says, okay, here you get a little bit, and you get a little bit over here. I've still got a bunch. If you need some more, come back and tell me. No, the picture image here given to us is that God says, here's the abundance to each one of us. An abundance of goodness. Kindness. Even loving kindness is a translation, uh, is a way to translate in English. His faithfulness, his love, his acts of kindness toward us. Psalms 136, we'll take the time to turn there, is the classic text on God's goodness. If you ever doubt God's goodness, write this down somewhere, Psalm 136. I think it's 22 times in that chapter it expounds God's goodness. And you know what? God's goodness has no conditional statement tied to it. God's goodness is always and forever available. And God always is going to work for our good. Even when circumstances of life, as our pastors taking us through the life of Joseph, are unbearable and seemingly impossible, we need to be reminded that God introduces himself as one abundant in goodness. He's also abundant in truth. Truth is a, is a, lack, a lacking commodity in our culture today. Absolute truth, biblical truth, surety of truth. We don't have an abundance of truth. We have a dearth of truth in our culture today. And let us not, as God's people, God's children, born-again Christians, deny the reality that we have truth found in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who said, I am the way, the truth. In the life. Truth is conduct according to God's holy standard. Truth is a big topic. It has lots of tentacles. There's even series about truth and, and all these different things. There's still lots of layers to the conversation of truth. We'll save that for another message or probably a series of messages at a later time. But that's what truth is. It, it's a conduct that reflects God's holy character. If God is truth and we seek to do that which pleases God, then we are pursuing truth. Truth never misguides us, does it? Unlike our GPS sometimes. Truth reflects reality. It is a path of righteousness that we can be firm and sure in our day-to-day in our -day lives of. It is a foundation for our ethical decisions for our convictions. Truth should be an integral part of our understanding of how we live our life, 
but never let us forget the reality that truth is found in God and God alone as its source. Then it says, keeping mercy for thousands. The translation of the English leaves us thinking something different than the text intends. We read the phrase mercy for thousands and we're thinking thousands of people. A more literal uh, uh, translation is to read it this way, keeping mercy for thousands of generations. So that it's not just a few thousand and the best of luck to the rest of you. It's thousands of generations upon generations. So that all people should have an understanding of God who keeps and provides this mercy for thousands. His faithfulness, his acts of kindness, his love abounding toward the multitudes of generations of humanity. We're told then that God is forgiving. Isn't that a great word? God is forgiving. And if the text had simply said forgiving, we could have stopped there and rejoiced in it. But the text goes to make sure we don't miss a point here. As, a, as the Lord God introduces himself, he says, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. That covers the entire gamut. Tra- uh, iniquity, a word that means evil, deliberate perversion. We live in a culture today that is deliberately perverting reality and truth. It means you're guilty. Iniquity. Transgression, the next word, is a rebellion against God and his laws. When you see the word transgression in Scripture, an easy parallel is to think of the no trespassing signs. What's a no trespassing sign do? It says this far and no more. God's put up no trespassing signs. And we willingly step over. Oh, oh, here I am. Here I am. We willingly do that. We've committed trespasses against God's laws. And then sin. Sin is missing the mark is an easy way to teach it to young people and for us who are trying to put a simple parallel to this. Missing the mark. It's the archer with his arrow, and the arrow falls five feet short of the target. It's indiscretions. It's evil committed against God and against others. Isn't it something how a simple three-letter word is so reviled by our culture? There's volumes of books about, written about man's inabilities, his shortcomings, his failures, but they will never mention sin. But from God's perspective, from God's eternal, holy, righteous perspective, it is sin. Nothing less and nothing else can describe it accurately. Then it says, and that God, introducing himself, says that will no means clear the guilty. Who are the guilty? The ones who stand before a holy, righteous judge and have no forgiveness of their sins. 
their iniquities and their trespasses are still on them. Even at a human level, we understand guilt, and we understand the declaration of guilt means punishment. The declaration of guilt implies there's no other avenue of repayment for your actions than the punishment defined. God has no means to clear the guilty unless they come and receive his forgiveness. There is no other avenue. The no that is in that statement is a strong word in the Hebrew. No or no way, we would say it. There is no other avenue except to receive God's grace, to receive God's forgiveness, to receive God's Son as the payment for our sin. My sin, my iniquity, my transgressions were put on the cross, and his blood covers those, washes them away. So that for the person who has put their faith and trust in God, they are no longer guilty. But there is no other way. There is no other avenue. The New Testament will say it this way. There is no other name given among men whereby you must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Quite an introduction, quite a clarity of reality to us, to understand a bit about God. I mentioned there's a portion that's there in uh, verse 7, I believe it is. It talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children. Some people have really tried to take this and, and make the case for what's called generational sin, the action of the father is somehow guilt passed to other generations. I want to call it generational sin. I submit to you that it's not biblical. Now, I can submit to you from this very text it's not biblical. What is being talked about here is not generational sin, but the consequences to a generation of sin. So if one generation sins... The consequences of that sin will be felt by succeeding generations. But every person stands before God individually, uniquely. Great words for sure. We will, of course, read through and follow the life of Moses from here. He will come down the mountain and find all the, all the debauchery that's happening and all the craziness that goes there. Exodus will end. We will, follow, we will follow Moses and the people of Israel from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers, which is the travel journey of the wilderness, to Deuteronomy, where they stand there near the Jordan River, finally to cross over. But Moses will not go. And Deuteronomy is a book that gives us the words of Moses how God inspired Moses to speak to that generation about their responsibility before God. And in conclusion, Moses will say this to that generation, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. 
Therefore, choose life. The choice could not be plainer, could not be more simple. Life and life and blessing, death and cursing. What choice would you make? What choice would a person of common sense, good understanding, and general intelligence make? The choice of God's way. We will bury Joseph. I mean, we will bury uh, Moses at the end of Deuteronomy to see Joseph. I'm not Joseph. Joshua, step up to become the leader, and we will follow Joshua through his and the people of Israel's adventures through the book of Joshua. By the time you get to the end of Joshua, Joshua now stands just before his death, before the people again. He says these words. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood? In other words, will you serve the gods of Egypt? Or will you serve the gods of the Amorites? They're all around us. Baal and Ashtaroth and Dagon. And there's plenty of gods. You pick a god, but serve somebody. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua's great statement. But as for me, as for my house, we will serve the Lord. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that this same opportunity is presented before us through the Scriptures. Choose you this day whom you will serve, and having said we will serve the living God, then it becomes our responsibility to know rightly about that God and what his word teaches us about him and about his work and his, his actions to direct and guide our lives. Do not leave this an undecided issue. There's a, a hymn of years past would say it. You know, don't fall into that category of almost. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad that bitter well. Almost but lost. Today, let's like the people of Israel were encouraged, both by Moses and Joshua, determine in our hearts and our minds that we will serve the living Lord God. And we will set our sights toward being an influence in a culture that needs that influence, doesn't it? We need to be more than just church sitters. We need to be those who are gospel go-getters. Let's take the gospel, the power of the gospel, and let's demonstrate it to the world around us. And let's boldly proclaim and preach the truth that is found in our living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads. We'll, we'll finish our time there today. I encourage you to go back and read this chapter, maybe portions of it. Go back and read Psalms 136. That talks about um, God's goodness, what it means for us to understand a little bit of his goodness. Let's find ourselves as those rightly seeking
to understand who God is because the opportunity will present itself for us to do that. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to open your word and to see plainly and boldly its truth. I pray that it will impact all of our hearts. Help us not to ride the fence. Help us not to hesitate. Help us to hear the challenge of Moses and of Joshua to their generations. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And let us make that choice plainly and clearly to put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Our only hope of mercy, our only hope of forgiveness, our only hope of eternity. And I pray that you will drill these truths deep into our hearts. And may we be a testimony as individuals, as families, and as a church of your grace to us and your mercy upon us and of your saving gospel. Help us today to be that type of person, that type of Christian to serve you well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand, if you will. What a great song JT's picked out for us, I think, for the day. It is sweet to trust in Jesus.